At this point, you should be on the frame with a film strip title that says Oral Hygiene. Welcome to Oral Hygiene. It's the podcast where you look at educational films, experimental caught films, and the more interesting of documentaries. We'll be going for uh, the latter part of that today. This is Matt. We got a special guest here, the guy that gave me the uh, only guitar lesson I've ever had and uh, currently plays in a, a, a legitimately really good band called Wolf Jet. Uh, they put out an album this year, and uh, I'm, I'm not trying to blow you know too much rainbows up your asshole, but that is a really good album. I, I've listened to it pretty, uh, pretty comprehensively. But uh, hello, Chris Jones. Hey, Matt. It's been a long time. Yes, it has. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, I do want to just throw out there that that people should. I'll have the link here. People should at least give that thing a listen because it's it's quite good. It's like somewhere between a Crosby, Stills, and Nash, and like I don't know, like a. Um, the Tim Buckley album or something. So, yeah, thanks, man. A <laughs> little, nice little bit of the band going on there. I like all that. And yeah, yeah. listen, I'm like, hey, I, I know this guy's voice. I mean, it's been decades, but I'm like, hey, I can recognize the dude's voice. So that was kind of cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, uh, First band the, ever was with you, man. <laughs> yeah, the fetal First pigs. Fetal pigs. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if that was legitimate or not, man, but okay. Uh, it's legitimate in my eyes. <laughs> okay, cool. <laughs> But uh, today we're here to to get into it about Hendrix with the um, Rainbow Bridge film. So, Chris, I, I told you I usually bug the guests to give the uh, four or five sentence TV guide synopsis for this one. Uh, could, could you give that for me? Yeah, uh, basically some guy or some group of guys with a whole bunch of money and a whole bunch of LSD decided to put on their own uh, Jimi Hendrix concert in Hawaii, um, and get a bunch of cameras and, um, basically without any plan further than that. Um, and, uh, you know, they just jumped on a plane and, and tried to make a movie, um, of the show. And it's a complete psychedelic train wreck. And it just shows you, um, what happens with hippies and drugs and how that can go completely wrong. And still Jimi Hendrix makes it right. Yeah, you can go out a shit show here if you want. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I didn't um, check. <laughs> I, 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 no, I, I saw you catching yourself. I'm like, no, you don't have to catch that if you don't want to. I was actually surprised how much of a fit it is for the, uh, you know, the educational film or the, you know, the weird documentary. Because, yeah, it's basically a, a clunky advert for joining a commune, which probably wants a lot of your money. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and I'm a huge fan of cult, uh, cult culture, and so it kind of does go along with all that kind of brainwashing, and you can see how everybody's on drinking the same Kool Aid in that movie. Um, I, uh, I'm guessing you've had a, just from seeing your Facebook feed. I, I think you found yourself in a few of these positions, but I found myself in like weird commune situations in the in my early 20s. I did environmental education, so it's like te okay. temporary communes. You'd go and like live in cabins with like. 20 other people for uh, two or three months uh i went to canada once i was just in this old house for like um three months while some other guy was living out in a giant tent so 
I started right. in the giant tent, but it was Canada and it was cold even in summer. So I moved into like this, this closet in the house, basically. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, I, I jumped ship and went to Spain for a year and lived in an artist commune there for six months. This was a, uh, three years ago. And then, um, ended up living in a bunch of hippie slash like punk, uh, you know, alternative living, mostly anarchist, uh, collectives, um, which just includes, you know, garbage everywhere and people losing their minds and getting super paranoid and strung out. And I saw some shit, man. It was crazy. <laughs> I guess that's where the environmental um, ed thing helped a little bit because we all had a job to do and, uh, you know, there are kids around, yeah. so we couldn't get, we couldn't get like <laughs> too off the track. So, but. yeah, it's nice when everybody has to sober up on Monday, you know, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, yeah, it, it was kind of fun, but I, yeah, I did get some of those vibes uh, watching this. Uh, I, I, you know, Hawaii definitely seems like a groovy place to do that. I haven't been there. I've been to Okinawa, but uh, yeah, yeah. I've been to Hawaii. Me neither. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> sounds but, amazing um, though. I've always heard of Hawaii is like one of the most psychedelic, most beautiful places on earth, and I've just never. I mean, I've never had the money to go. You know. <laughs> See, I'll give, um, you know, one point to the man of uh, my company uh, before COVID and before we got bought by corporate folks, but uh, we'd have company trips. So they took us down to Okinawa like three times. And, oh, wow. Uh, I, I mean, maybe, you know, maybe Hawaii is more psychedelic. I don't, I don't know. Okinawa is quite nice. So uh, yeah, down some fun snorkeling there. Um, lots of colors, just like the uh, credits of this one. I, I definitely liked how like eight tabs of acid went into the uh, prologue. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, totally. I think they worked harder on the prologue than any other part of the movie. They they kind of lost their steam. I don't think I've ever seen the movie all of the way to the end. Um, I do remember the flute part, and I remember just being like totally bummed at that part and being just like, I can't take this anymore, and this has to stop at some point. So. <laughs> <laughs> you know yeah obviously the main thing here is uh waiting waiting for jimmy to show up and um when he does right. show up, it's in that totally weird scene in like a basement or something but, yeah um, and he's like basically I just like rapping it. about astrology <laughs> yeah it's yeah, bizarre yeah. so what did i put uh finally a hendrix to save us i don't think he wants to be here it's groovy to see what seems to be some pretty candid of stoned hendrix and that dude's in the weeds <laughs> yep. with astrology there we go <laughs> Yeah, but I mean, this is this is near the end of his life, and I think he was kind of like trying to buck the trends a little bit. Um, I think he was actually trying to. Of course, it's like, oh, he died from an overdose, but it sounds like in general he was like getting the idea that maybe that wasn't the thing to do anymore. <laughs> yeah, no, I I think uh, you have to look at Hendrix from a management point of view too. Like Jim Jeffries was like a horrible manager um, and was stealing a bunch of money from him and just was riding him su super hard. And then he ended up like, I think he was working with Alan Douglas by the time he did this movie, who was like kind of more wild and like, do your own thing. And I, I want to support you as an artist. And I think Hendricks was like probably searching at that point. I and mean, he's only 27 years old. He's probably like searching for a way out. You know, unfortunately, <laughs> I don't think there, there were too many ways out for him at that point. Like nobody was looking out for him, even his managers, like just, they didn't really have his best interest in mind. Not not to get into the weeds too much, but I think I think Jeffries had actually had like some CIA connections. So yeah, supposedly. Was supposedly him, you know. Yeah, you could see him getting like a little extra pissed on all that. <laughs> but uh, anyway, we get we get we got a nice living, you know, relatively 
uh, happy stone looking Hendrix in this one. So that's nice. But I, I think that is my favorite scene because, you know, I, if I really want to see some live Hendrix, there's, well, I've seen Monterey enough times. It's, it's, I did go to bed last night actually listening to the live and Maui album, which is probably a better bet than actually watching this movie for most people. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But, uh... <laughs> Although with YouTube now, you can probably just skip to the good parts and, and just see those parts. Because I mean, like, Pally Gap on there is awesome. And like, there's a few tunes on there that he does in a, kind of an original way. And uh, we could go into that all day. But I liked I liked what you're you know, like the fact that Billy Cox and Mix Mitch Mitchell, that combo was like the hybrid of Band of Gypsies and the experience. And there's not a lot of that. Like you don't see that combo until the very end. They didn't really do that too much. So it's kind of special. Yeah, like I like the band of Gypsies album quite well, but uh, there's a Buddy Miles, um, yeah, like very good, but not kind of a weird fit. I think um, maybe Hendrix need, just needed a looser jazz drummer than like a you know hard backbone funk drummer. Right, right. Yeah, I mean it's a matter of taste, but at the end of the day, I think Mitch Mitchell played to Hendrix, and Buddy Miles plays to Buddy Miles, <laughs> and then you know it's yeah, like yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and Billy Cox definitely was like, I'm just gonna be playing like whatever I have to do to keep some sort of groove going, and not even worry about Hendrix. I kind of feel like he plays like that. Like he doesn't play off of him at all. He just really sticks to the script, and. Uh, and and that drive is kind of like good with Mitch Mitchell in a way that's really nice, you know. I, I think that's kind of a cool, you know. It lets Hendrix just do whatever he needs to do, you know, which is yeah, whatever. That, that I was mean, my, it's insane. <laughs> that, that was my key into jazz, actually, because uh, you know Mitch Mitchell. Oh, I'm just doing Elvin Jones, so I start listening to Elvin Jones, and you know from there right, you go right. to other places. Yeah, I, actually, these days, yeah. most of my jazz listings like 70s electric jazz, but, you know, whatever. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, and you're, you know, it's like Mitch is one of the only drummers. I don't think even Ginger Baker plays with the, the side stick, you know, he, you were talking about that in your notes and saying that, you know, you notice he played with like the jazz hand drum, which is that like right angle kind of drum. And that's like totally unique um, in the rock world. And, you know, it's like, I wouldn't say Mitch is my favorite rock drummer by any means. I wouldn't even put him in like the top five, but like for playing with Hendrix, it's the only, like he did play with Hendrix, like Coltrane and, and Elvin Jones did. And you really see that's like the archetype for kind of like how Mitch was playing it. You know, he's just like, I'm going to play it out. Like the sheets of sound are going and I'm just going to be like basically bouncing off of those and bouncing off the walls. You know, it's really, it's really a unique way to play especially in those later hendrix concerts because um you know he gets way more into jamming in the later part of his life and uh he needs oh, yeah, basically sure. to, to to balance that again i mean you know with buddy miles you got machine gun on an album so you know he, he did yeah, his job it's insane. But... <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, i mean i'm I, i'm a hendrix acolyte i believe that like i think like years ago you and i were like jamming on like angel or something over at Andy's house. And like, so I've been listening and a huge fan of Hendrix ever since I found my dad's records when I was nine. And he's always been the ultimate, um, musician, you know, and just animal spirit is just, his spirit is just incredible and it never gets old. Like anything he does is pretty amazing. Um, even, even rainbow bridge, you know, it's still a pretty, pretty listenable concert in my opinion. Oh yeah. Like I said, I had the thing, uh, 
on my CD player last night. So I, I have a CD player. What's wrong with me? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Come on, get, get with the, whatever the new technology is that isn't Back, as good. <laughs> no, actually come to think of, it, I was listening to that one on my iPad. Okay. Be Beethoven was in the CD player and Hendrix was on the iPad. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah. Actually, I'll gear you talk you a little bit because my, my solution has been weird of course hearing jimmy on a stratocaster is always great but as a guitar player i've always had kind of a love-hate uh, relationship with stratocasters absolutely i mean strats are like so okay so i play a telecaster a lot now i own a telecaster i've always want to go back to strats and i just hate them i i can't stand them from a player's perspective it's like the telecaster is the exact opposite it always stays in tune the bridge is solid the pickups um while they have a little bit of hum they kind of still bring it they they have like that like nice piercing sound and the controls are really far away and for some reason with the stratocaster it's like these horrible nasal sounding pickups with uh you know an oversized headstock where the strings like go out of tune all the time and then let's not even talk about the the whammy bar on those things they're awful like i play bigsby and like lear vibratos um but i started with that like super horrible whammy bar that's like not only does it go out of tune relentlessly uh when you bend the top string the bottom string goes flat on you and also like it breaks strings like crazy. I mean, Hendrix must've just like lost his mind and then he's a half step lower. So the strings are even more slack. So it's like, it's insane. And then there's the knobs, which are like, you're constantly hitting those. And now you take all that garbage that the, that the Strat has with it, you flip it upside down now your controls are on top so you're not only are you hitting the controls with the top of your hand which i don't know how he got around that you can't hit the high notes on it it's only got a cutaway on you know like half of a cutaway basically on the top and <laughs> yeah it's impossible and it's only hendrix that could do it because i guess he had like a foot long you know ring finger his ring finger was just like you know his hands were like robert johnson's they're just enormous and you know that dude could play anything i mean that's what the reality is my my first solution myself was i, I did a telecaster for years and did of course liked it just uh, i played it for almost 20 years it's like it's time to do something else so i went i went hard right and got a epiphone casino and a les paul first um, yeah i've got a casino i love those guitars but here, here's my i'll show you my strat solution it's this bizarro um british one okay <laughs> With with the Brian May pickups. Oh, it's a Burns. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So um, those are pretty cool pickups, actually. They're pretty, uh, pretty in insane sounding, right? <laughs> yeah, they're kind of like, um, they're kind of like, you know, Strats on steroids. And and then my other solution. This is a weird one that I'll. I'm almost doing a Fender commercial here now, but uh, <laughs> this this was a pawn shop guitar. But um, as far as I can tell, it's actually new, which is actually bad because I think guitars need to age. This is I, I got my. So I'm doing the pawn shop weirdo fender now for the rest of the Stratty sound. Oh, right. Set up double, like an SG. double humbuckers. Yeah, straight up. Like yeah, an see, SG. at least you don't have the noise issues. Like strats are just super buzzy and um, they do sound really good with like vintage fuzzes. Um, and, you know, like Dungan, I don't know if you listen to that band at all, but Dungan is really great about like the guitar player in that band. I cannot pronounce his name for the life of me, but he's really great about like making the strat sound good which is not to me, not intuitive or easy to do. I've never, never really 
loved them. <laughs> I try, I want to, but then you notice like Jimmy then switched over to a flying V, you know, later in his career, he starts playing Gibson's and it's like, that's like the perfect guitar for him. I mean, the humbuckers are super and you know, um, it's got that great like piercing sustain and it's the same on both sides. So you got the same fret access and you can flip it over. The Varbrola doesn't really get in your way that much. And when you're not using it, you can just like pop it over. Um, and Gibson's do stay in tune better than Strats in in my experience. You know, I've got, I've got plenty of Gibson. So yeah, somewhere, I can... I, somewhere I had that needle turn at some point. It used to be like, I couldn't keep a, a Gibson tune. I think it's the way I play. When I played live, I just bashed the crap out of my guitar. My Telecaster was like covered in little blood stains, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, the, the, you know. Yeah. The Telecaster just takes a lick in and keep on ticking. The Gibsons are still, they, they don't stand tuned as well. The G string always goes out on them for me. Um, and I think it's because it's, there's like, it's pulling or something at the nut. I don't know. It's like all technical jargon, but. Um, but yeah, Gibsons are at least better than Strats. That's all I'm going to say about that. <laughs> yeah, I've turned into like a not a studio musician, but I don't, you know, I don't play with bands that much anymore. So I'm always just recording. So now I don't tend yeah. to pull my guitars so hard. So <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I've got a, a '60s Epiphone Olympic, which is basically like their version of a Strat. It looks almost identical to a Strat, and that thing stays in tune for days. It's a '60, I think four, and but they put the bad pickup in it, like the bad single coil pickups in it. So I switched out uh, the pickup for a P90 and that's the closest I've come to a, to a Strat. And it's, it's actually better than a Strat in my opinion from the sixties. Not only that, the Strats like were made with this like really heavy polyurethane finish and they're really thick and like, you know, the Gibsons use nitro cellulose lacquer, which is like nice. You can see the wood underneath. Like, I mean, the Hendrix guitars that he used in the seventies are like those post CBS. Like they're not, they don't have that much mojo to them. I played a, f a bunch of them and they just, they're not anything compared to like the early sixties strats, which were like really special, you know, in his first part of his career, he was playing those, but like by 70, like the, he was just getting them off the line from Fender and they weren't that, I mean, there's nothing special about them. Right. Um, Oh, what was I going to say? I lost my thought. Anyway, uh, my other thought was to throw out some of the uh, insane lines that the, the hippies were saying. Just to, yeah, uh, yeah, for sure. I, I, I had to write down some of the uh, the the lame pickup artists who's like, we can't like make love. Yeah. <laughs> One, I'm like, what are you doing, man? Yeah. <laughs> this woman's throwing herself at you and you're trying to convince her not to. I'm like, I guess, I guess that's because he's enlightened, but whatever. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know, man. I I really feel like people were just like trying to find the answers and so lost at that point. And it's like, you know, I'm like a huge fan of like the Ram Dass, like um, um, Be Here Now. I don't know mm -hmm. if you ever read that book or looked at it. It's a fantastic article of like a hippie who went to India and was like, oh, drugs are actually not the answer. Like I've dropped like 400 hits of acid for like every day for the last like five years. And I've hung out with Timothy Leary and there's nothing there. You know, it wasn't until he went to India and went to an ashram and, and started, um, just silent meditation that he actually like kind of changed his life. You know, I mean, I think he started out Richard Alpert and <laughs> ended That's up, right. you know, <laughs> ended up this, this, uh, you know, kind of a spiritual being. And, and you just realize like how, I mean, I've hung out with a bunch of dead 
heads and stuff. And, you know, it's like, I see people get their brains scrambled on hallucinogenics and ayahuasca. That's another like whole thing. It's like totally misused in so many situations, people going down the wrong paths. And apparently these guys that were making this movie just had unlimited amounts of LSD. I mean, they were just like handing it around to everybody for free. Like, I don't know where they got all this shit. <laughs> like, no, uh, we just we just did a film um, for this podcast, LSD 25, where um, there's a guy at the beginning. I mean, the film's from 1968 or something. He's like, yeah, man, it's everywhere. You can just I can make a phone call now, go two blocks and have a whole bunch of ass. I'm like, hey, where were you when I was a teenager? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. It's but, like, uh, you know, well, then, then the government, you know, cracked down on it and terrified everybody and. And, you know, I, I know that the government was trying to protect people, but they also were using it, <laughs> their own mind experiments and up in Canada and down at, you know, in all these places. And it's like, you know, it's funny that they were shutting it down yet secretly using it as a weapon. <laughs> it's like, geez, yeah. man. <laughs> no, look at Japan, I mean, uh, straight up, you don't, you don't do any of that stuff, right? That's uh, just, right. It's, I know it's, it's very, a, you didn't talk to McCartney, right? <laughs> yeah. It's a very limited culture as far as you know what illegal substances are permitted or even people bother trying right they have no moral compunction it's just like what's well, against the law <laughs> like yeah. like if yeah. we're in canada sure why not but um yeah, no, yeah. That, that got me about five years ago like oh just oh, i want to try and you know i want to trip out man and then i was like what dmt's in, in the center of your head and of course that ended up leading to me learning how to meditate really well so <laughs> right right and i, <laughs> I gotta cool. be honest like 10 days of like silent meditation has gotten me to places that way farther than, than the drugs I've used and without the, like the fear of like, am I ever going to be okay again? Yeah. <laughs> you know, there's only so far you can go out when you're like, okay, uh, I can't see the way back again, you know? And, and with meditation, it, it just feels so much more, uh, pleasant and, and wholesome in this great way. So I'm, I'm a fan of meditation. You know, I do it, do it from the, time to time as well. The, the other one that, um, really actually, this is probably the most psychedelic experience you could imagine. Um, the, the, have you ever mentioned, uh, mentioned managed one of the wild method lucid dreams? No. And I've heard people talking about it. Like there's a way that, so what I'm understanding is there's actually a method to, interpret and enter your dreams and then you actually take control and then it's like there's a standard to the lucid dream or something like it's kind of like the dmt experience where you're like everybody kind of sees a fairy or they see a door or something is that right i'm kind of bringing it up because i had to wake up a little earlier this morning it's actually like 7 23 here right now in the morning so yeah. part of the thing is to wake up a little earlier like, right uh, right you wake up maybe 3 30 in the morning or even five for me it's actually been more like five or six in the morning so um right and i found it's it's not as comfortable but think about the um you know don't get up or anything definitely don't look at your phone to blast yourself with the the blue light or any of that right uh, right but um the the sleeping buddha you'll see them in a lot of uh southeast asian sculptures and stuff okay you're, you're on your right side and your hand is actually you're like on your hand yes i've seen the statues of yeah, yeah. i mean if, if people are listening they, they probably know what i'm talking about so kind of that position which it's reasonably comfortable enough and, and the idea is to let your body fall asleep so you, cl right. you close your eyes and you'll start to see kind of images and then some of them will start to look like things for me a lot of times it'll be like just a shadow image of like 
going down a street or looking at a building or something like that. Interesting. And then okay. as, as that goes, one of those images will just coalesce and you blast into the image. Now I haven't, wow. I have, it's, I'm not DMTing in that way. Um, I'm not meaning the machine elves. It was, it was like a seaside restaurant that I ended up sort of materializing in. There's one <laughs> I didn't like it. I just kind of rematerialized back in the restaurant. <laughs> then I went in, I just started looking at the posters and like, Looking at the details, I'm like, come on, my brain's not making all of these details. But I know it was because I went directly from wake to sleep. There was like no, no, you know, it's not like the inception thing. Do you remember how, how you got here? It's like, yes, I do. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Uh, so it, so it's actually, is there is there a point to it other than kind of exploring this world and seeing the world? There's there's no, it's just kind of like a meditation on this other realm, I guess, huh? Well, yeah, like um, control. Well, the, the idea of the the Tibetan dream Buddhist or whatever. Um, so so for me, I'm you know this one. I'm not going to say this is easy stuff. You kind of have to commit to it and uh, right slowly right. get results. I'd say at this point, I manage that maybe once a month. Really, okay. a couple of years goes you know once every six months, and the first time I it, I managed it was probably a year before I managed it again. You know. Wow. But the uh, the Tibetan guys would say, you know, you start learning how to not you know manipulate a little bit. It's actually harder than you think to actually manipulate this stuff. It's like oh, it's okay. my dream. Anything can happen. But um, you know, but you, you start to control a little bit. The idea is once you're in control, that's when you start seeking out you know the uh, the ascended masters or whatever. I'm definitely not to that stage yet. But the the idea. Is oh wow! I guess they're seeking out the consciousness of the sort of. Uh, what the DMT people would be blasted straight into. Right. So, right. So it is know? a form of like meditation. Essentially you're, you're just essentially exploring your own consciousness and finding, finding something there that's deeper that you can't access in normal life very easily. Right. Right. Exactly. So I'm not throwing it out there. Cause I just had a, you know, I, these were, I don't think these rainbow bridge people are getting those effects because there's, dropping a bunch of lsd which is kicking the door down you know <laughs> right right exactly and they, you can only imagine like behind i mean the thing about the rainbow bridge is there is no filter so it's like in a way that from a documentary standpoint it's like kind of fascinating to just see what a bunch of really boring people on lsd like a bunch of shallow party animals i mean i'm sure they wouldn't consider themselves that but like people who are like literally on this trip of like we are seeking the answers and we know what's going down and we're feeling like, you know, the, the feeling of the cosmos and they're trying to describe it into words. And I, you know, I can't even imagine what it'd be like to be filmed on like the drugs they were on and then have to look at that, you know, like we're looking at it as a, as an art, you know, like as almost like from an anthropological point of view, it's kind of fascinating to see just like, it's like if you've ever gone to a rave and you've been the only straight guy at the rave and you just hear all these people uttering complete nonsense. And, you know, if, if you're there and it's you, it's, it's making sense in your head. But like even Hendrix, it's like, I don't even know what Hendrix is saying, but it is like one of the only like live interviews of Hendrix where he probably doesn't even know that there's a camera on him at some point. He's just rapping backstage with these people and just basically like just you know, it's kind of, what is the, uh, there's some Latin term for it where it's just like, you know, the, 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 he has no idea of what was well, in cinema terms. I guess that'd be cinema verite. Cinema verite. Yeah, exactly. Like good or something like that. You know, it's like, 
And, and of course, a lot of people were exper experimenting with that. So it's not like totally original from that point of view. And that's probably what the guys that were making the, the film were like, yeah, let's do like Godard or something, you know, let's, let's do like, um, you know, that kind of cinema verite style. And they probably had like these huge, like pretensions that they were making some like piece of art, you know, and even some of the stuff that from, from France and the, in the sixties was kind of like, okay, some of this is actual garbage, you know, and some of it's worth, you know, exploring again, I guess. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. I, I do want to get, I do want to get to, uh, I was, yeah, I've never decided which side of the fence Alphaville. So it's on, if you've seen that, it's just good. No, not who, who's that. It's, um, that's not, is it Godard? I don't remember, but it's, it's basically like a, a, um, new wave sci-fi, but it's got this, just like the most <laughs> annoying, like computer voice or something ever. So and it's, you know, <laughs> super slow. So yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll watch anything once. So <laughs> yeah, but, um, uh, I did want to talk a little bit about that stage setup, which was insane looking and apparently was horribly dangerous. They, they didn't, ha it didn't meet safety standards, with the, uh... <laughs> which there were no safety standards back then. And can you imagine trying to put a festival together in Hawaii back in the early seventies? I think it's probably 1970 when this is filmed, but <laughs> yeah, yeah, it looks a little, it looks a little bit wonky. The stage, I, I, I faintly remember that that stage <laughs> and i can't remember if they specifically mentioned the movie but the uh it was only like, like 500 people but they were um organized by astrology they had 12 sections for everyone. Yeah. you had to go to yeah. your whatever you were assigned so i guess if your significant <laughs> other is an aries you're screwed <laughs> yeah i guess so yeah you're like right on the right side behind the the tower hey. the speaker tower <laughs> but there were only a couple hundred people there so i guess it's you can, yeah. you can find yeah. your your and man i mean safety standards aside just yeah if you were able to be in that setting watching that concert that that really would have been the shit <laughs> i know and i've never heard from anybody from that concert nobody's ever done an interview that i found i'm sure it's out there if i looked they all dropped you know, out man <laughs> yeah, they, they all probably became bankers and lawyers after after the 70s or something <laughs> i guess i did hear one interview that which is where i got that tidbit of information because it was it, it was from an attendee but i can't remember where i came across that so oh well <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah i mean to be honest like the people if the same people who are making the film were the same people setting up the stage then i got definite def i would have had worries if i were hendrix you know and back then you didn't have like the kind of um rigs you have now i mean stage rigging and stuff now i don't know if you've seen like modern stages or even stages from the 80s and later but rigging is incredibly dangerous i've done a, a just a a little bit of it and you're talking like thousands of pounds of of lighting obviously for that festival they didn't have i mean for the the rainbow bridge they didn't have lights but you know, just like the stereo, uh, you know, setup alone, it's just like all those speakers and everything super dangerous. I mean, I don't know if you've seen the picture of Hendrix at Royal, I think it's Royal Albert hall where he's like bashing into his Marshall stacks and the, the roadie is standing behind the speaker. It's like from the side stage and the roadie's like standing up, like holding the heads, trying to keep the heads from falling. Cause he knows that it like, if Hendrix breaks that, he's going to be like, putting new tubes in it and having to repair this thing, you know, it's like, it's like back then they didn't have any kind of like, you know, 
solid stages or anything. I think they just probably threw that up right for the show. Well, even in the 90s, the rigging like completely took out Curtis Mayfield. Oh, yeah, exactly. And and uh, was it Michael Jackson hit by, with pyrotechnics as was James Hetfield? I mean, that's later, obviously, you know. But yeah, I mean, the, the rigging stuff is no joke. And uh, and it's come a long way since then, obviously. And OSHA has gotten involved and all of the rigging people in the U.S. are union people and stuff. But um, <laughs> But yeah, I mean... It's incredible. In some ways, it's amazing that guys like Hendrix even survive, you know, the seven, 60s and 70s, uh, even that early part of the 70s. Well, he did he it. He died at 26, <laughs> you know what I mean? But he didn't. He lived to 27. But, I cry but yeah, it's, album. it's crazy, man. And the, and the whole, like, the whole just way that whole thing came together just seems like somebody and the top was just basically throwing money down from up above and just making it rain cash. And I guess there must've been some confident people because the cinematographers did a good job. If you really look at it, I mean, the concert footage is actually really dope because there's only 200 people. So they were able to move throughout the audience really well. And there's just like, I mean, the, the, you know, the cinematographer, they probably hired like good people to do that work, you know? They just didn't have an interesting subject matter except for the Hendrix show itself, you know? Yeah, like if you had been a Monterey, it would have been a pretty crowded mess. And if you had been at Woodstock, yeah. that would have sucked. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. And if you look mud. at me, Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And by that point, you know, a, another observation of the, the film is that Hendrix at that point is like totally on that trip that he was on at Woodstock, where it's like all Univibe, which is just basically, you know, phaser and Wawa pedal. And I think once he got a hold of that Univibe sound, and then he was also using the Octavia, you know, using that sound pretty, pretty standard a after um, Band of Gypsies. But yeah, he gets into that super like intense world, which is where I, I love it. You know, I build guitar pedals. So for me, it's fascinating to hear that era of Hendrix where it's like, you know, live, he's no, it's not like the sixties where he's just literally like cranking the amps up to 10 and that's the sound. It's more like, you know, he's literally like crafting a sound that's like spinning around the floor, you know, and just like totally beautiful to me. And Pally Gap is probably the greatest amalgamation of that as far as like that wobbly wiggly sound that he's you know kind of getting into on that in that stage i've, I've started playing with well uh, you, you're gonna you're gonna cry with shame here but uh virtual <laughs> pedals on the the ipad oh yeah how do they yeah. work do they are they good the, they weren't good about three years ago but um because yeah. it's convenient i think i told you i, I go recording like rice fields now right <laughs> which is yeah cool. you had mentioned that you're doing outdoor which is cool i kind of want to explore that and then I'm, myself. I'm direct lining all the guitar. So by doing the percussion and the vocals, and even if I'm playing guitar, maybe there's some vibe out there, but you know, there's like yeah. birds and stuff in the recording, but, uh, super for, cool. Yeah. For like five years previous to that, I had just been overdriving a little of uh, that kind of lunchbox looking box tube amp, the night train. I'd been just overdriving that. So yeah. Yeah. And not using any effects. I got a big muff somewhere here. I haven't used for probably eight years <laughs> maybe because it's so gigantic that you don't want to lug it around with you anymore man those things are ridiculous <laughs> oh it's a, it's, a, it's a short move it's just right, right there I, I used to record all my parts sitting in this chair so <laughs> yeah 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 i mean if you want to get into pedals and stuff i mean 
the time when Hendrix is using pedals, it's a totally different ball game. You know, it's like, um, and nowadays it's incredible. Like I built my first digital pedal where it's like an, it's called an EE prom or whatever you, we literally program a chip on a computer and then you plug that chip into the pedal. And now I have this pedal that's, I think it does like 18 different, it does nine different reverbs and nine like effects in just the size of like a normal guitar pedal. It's like insane how far that's come. And then, yeah, with the digital modeling and everything, I mean, it's like, you know, I, I personally think that guys like Hendrix would have loved that, love to see that kind of evolution and been right there with all the technology, just like, you know, I think like Herbie Hancock and Stevie wonder were when it came to synthesizers, it's like, you know, I, I've tried to embrace all that technology. Hendrix just had like the very rudimentary things and was just doing the most with it, you know, to think about that guy's mind and his ability to make sonic sounds with just those simple three tools. Like he's only got three pedals and, you know, to think what somebody like him could do and what people like, him are doing now because there's people with minds like that nowadays that can do it you know i think like kevin parker from tame impala did his first record on a br i don't know if it's 862 or what but it's like this little four track recorder and i used to have one it's got like 20 digital effects in it and all and people are like all over the internet like how does he get this fuzz sound it's like that's the one that's in the little 20 dollar, you know 200 dollar like four track digital sound and you know it's a piece of shit but he just like could do cool shit with it you know he's just a really th- creative guy you know i think that album's got all the gear on the back cover if i remember uh, the first yeah, or the second yeah. one <laughs> it's like you see yeah i think it's the first cover. one where he's yeah he's almost like kind of like proud i mean he should be proud of it but yeah he did a lot with very little and 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 you know i think hendrix had all the money in all the world he was the richest musician of his time in 1970 in 1971 when he died you know he was getting more than a million dollars a show which is way more than the stones were getting and you know he just he could do anything he wanted and so he would have been down with it but you know (laughs) it's just it's just one of those things where it's like i always thought like what if with hendrix like would he have gotten into like the joe zawinall era of like you know like if him and miles had got together and made that record like Miles Davis and Jimmy Hendrix making a record together with Tony Williams on drums would be one of the most insane pieces of music that could ever be made. It, it's so sad to me that that never happened, you know? Yeah, he's definitely getting on a little bit more of a jazz trip uh, later on in those years. And uh, yeah, 70s electric jazz, you know, if he uh, just doing some fusion might be good. Sorry, I was looking yeah. here. I, I actually just got a link from um, Fetal Pigs Andrew for, for the Pedal movie, which is a new documentary about... <laughs> um guitar yeah. pedal so maybe we'll have to get that one in and go for a second round <laughs> gonna be fascinating yeah i could go all day on that stuff that's that's like my world now <laughs> <laughs> but one thing you did i don't know if you wanted to bring something else up but one thing you didn't mention to me and i don't know if you want to talk about was the album rainbow bridge the record yeah that the record the, half of it again you already mentioned poly gaps on there right just a fantastic yeah. track i mean the, the album is great it's got the uh studio room full of mirrors i think i, I do like yeah. that album quite well because uh, you know when we were kids it was like there's the real hendrix album and everything else is like alan douglas crap so yeah, when i was younger yeah. that you know that or war heroes kind of slipped through my fingers and i uh 
finally got around to listening about three years ago and and the rainbow ridge soundtrack in particular i was like wow this is some good stuff on here absolutely and so i'll tell you a little story that goes back to when we knew each other uh in my first year at kittridge i had rainbow bridge and i didn't i didn't know the historical context like i hadn't seen woodstock yet i just heard rainbow bridge and there's that version of the Star Spangled Banner that he does with like the double speeded guitars. And there's like seven guitar tracks over, you know, some are like half speed, some are double speed and some are normal like that. That Star Spangled Banner is not very well known. And I don't think that album ever got a CD release as far as I've never seen like an official Rainbow Bridge CD or, or even digital. I don't even know if it's on Spotify, but anyways, I brought the tape in. And I asked Mr. Dunlap, you know, can I play this version of the Star Spangled Banner? Because I'm so sick of hearing the like, you know, uh, you know, Philly, Philadelphia marching band version every single morning that they would play. And I was just like, can we play this? And I asked the the principal, and of course, like, got shut down. He probably didn't even know there was another version. He was just thinking the the Woodstock one that's so anti-war and everything. Um, yeah, it's just a funny story, you know. Can you imagine going to school and like hearing that? <laughs> it's like as your nine-year-old mind getting melted. That was my goal. I wanted that to happen so badly. I, I feel like I remember you talking so emphatically about it. In my memory, it did happen, so that's cool. <laughs> yeah. We were just doing an interview last week, and they're like, "Did you did you ever like get on the intercom at the airport or anything?" And <laughs> like, oh, that, I've always wanted to do that. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's a good one. Just see a flip in the Star Spangled Banner there. <laughs> yeah. It's not too late, man. I bet that school still exists and I could just sneak in there. I'd say I was a teacher or something and just be like, <laughs> put it on <laughs> just for old time's sake. You know, I couldn't, I couldn't tell you what's going on there now. Cause uh, I haven't been there since 2010. So, wow. So you've been gone. You've been in Japan since 2010, right? I have not been outside the borders of the country since then. Yeah. Like my wow. parents have visited a few times, a few friends have visited, but, uh, I can't be bothered. Just a 15 hour flight, uh, pl uh, plight flame, flame plight flame plate. yeah not so anymore. easy though yeah. not so easy for a lot of people especially with covid now i'm not i'm not like scared of flying i got like long legs you know <laughs> yeah it's just a physical physical problem yeah <laughs> but I, I guess we'll wind this one down for today but uh could you tell the folks listening about uh your album or what you're up to i, I think you actually got some shows coming up at some point too now finally yeah yeah uh so wolf jet was a band that um so when i moved to california after i left fetal pigs um i met this guy john payne who's been my drummer uh and we've been playing music together since the 90s and um so we lived together built a studio at his place up in here and i live in boulder creek california it's a uh, santa cruz mountains just south of san francisco and our house burned down in the czu fires um along with our studio with all of our analog recording gear and um, a lot of our instruments so um that and then of course that was during covid so you know we we finally released our album this year it's just called wolf jet j-e-t-t -T, and uh, you can find more information about us at wolfjet.net there's videos on youtube um you know we're kind of a we're doing the more uh got we caught caught cosmic gospel or cosmic cosmic uh sorry getting tongue twisted cosmic street gospel 
and it's just like you know it's chill music to like bring families together and and just make everybody feel good um because it's just easier to do that than it is to try to be a rock star these days <laughs> i think I, I think that is my most listened to 2020 album i'm kind of looking wow. at my files thing and seeing if oh no <laughs> i don't think there's been that much new music that i wanted to hear uh no not old. much <laughs> not much yet this year i've been waiting for people to release stuff but um but we had already finished it in 2020 so we were you know and so now we can play shows again we're not touring yet but we're playing locally in in california so if you go to wolfjet.net you can uh you can check out the local shows uh, i think we're playing a festival on may 30th and also happy mother's day to all the mothers out there your mother i know and um you know i i know your dad now so you've probably got some mother's day duties ahead of you today <laughs> it's monday here man i live in the future we, oh that's right i forgot did. man mother's day, and they probably don't even celebrate mother's day uh the same day in japan i i guess it's they probably do they day. do which oh, is, they it's, do? Just, okay. it's just tomorrow for you now now we got a hour and a half call in this weekend so uh or skype call but yeah um, yeah um otherwise I, I guess you should throw out the the Father's Day because that's when this will be released. <laughs> oh, okay. Happy Actually, Father's I, Day then to you and all yeah. your family. <laughs> right, yeah. Thanks. Um, I, I'm I'm looking here. I think I can even tell you what date this is coming out. Oh, okay, in the future, transport me to the future, that's where right. our astrological signs all align, and then the rainbow bridge comes down and takes us into the cosmic stardust of never-ending tomorrows. <laughs> Did you attend the strip? Are you on the final page? Well done. Walk the bedrock of being This is just for yourself The reality that you are seeing And got to the paradox See time is slippery cone Illusions become lost Like fireflies stuck in the snow On wings of glistening jade The sending ladders in our dreams are like the truths again The gods of the paradox See time to separate out Illusions become lost Like fireflies stuck in the snow
reality becomes a river Choosing water with which to flow Into the mind's eye from flourishing Valleys grow in the gardens of the paradox Seek time to slippery cone Illusions become lost like fireflies stuck in the snow